Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines, a podcast from The Independent. I'm Ben Kelly and each episode we'll be speaking to our correspondents and other experts to better understand what is happening around us in the worlds of politics, culture, sport and more. Now, we're six months into the global coronavirus pandemic. The UK is slowly bringing back restrictions as cases rise and there's a very strong chance that Christmas is cancelled. Just when you thought that was all bad enough... Brexit is back for its season finale and one final acrimonious showdown between the UK and the EU. Uh, To discuss this week's wild events, I could only be joined by our political sketch writer and columnist Tom Peck. Welcome, Tom. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem. Um, Tom, let's sort of put this all in context. It's all about the deal. Boris Johnson signed the withdrawal agreement with the EU. He then sold it to his own MPs. He sold it to we, the country, in December's election. He said it was a great deal. And now all of a sudden, um, it's getting ripped up. It was never a good deal, he's telling us. Uh, Is this a prime minister who doesn't read the deals he signs or a prime minister who doesn't tell the truth? I mean, Ben, that is hardly an either or, is it? Um, I mean, the the very clear answer is both. Um, Well, the, the degree to which Boris Johnson knew or didn't know that the withdrawal agreement that he, as you correctly say, sold to his own MPs and sold to the country and and has a very, has an enormous general election mandate behind it, this deal, which he now wants to tamper with, possibly. I mean, I think it is unlikely that he wasn't aware of its meaning because he, 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 when Theresa May has rejected a deal that was very similar to this one, and described it as a deal that no UK Prime Minister could ever sign. And back when she was looking at potentially signing it, Boris Johnson, not even Foreign Secretary at that point, had had, had quit the Cabinet, wrote a Telegraph column in which the, the, you know, the pull quote on the front page of the Daily Telegraph was, it will not be possible to remedy the faults in this deal later on in the negotiations. So I think it is possibly... I think it is unlikely that this stuff that he's saying now about it never really made sense and people like Ian Duncan Smith saying, oh, we were under so much pressure, we rushed it through, we didn't really get it. I don't think they are telling the truth there. I think it's just chicanery and trying to show the EU that, look, we're we're prepared to fight dirty. Um, We're not going to accept your offer. And maybe, maybe it is some attempts to force through some deal or other come this summit on October the 16th. But I don't know what reaction they imagined they were going to get. If they thought that this was going to be the way to force the EU to change tack or to somehow get Angela Merkel to come to the table and and sideline Michel Barnier, it hasn't worked. And I don't think it was ever going to work. What I don't really know is whether or not they intended for it to have a different, um, to, to be met with a different reaction to the one that it has been met with. But I, I do I do think it's unlikely that Boris Johnson wasn't aware of the contents of the deal in in in, no, in November when he sold to the to the country and then, and then in very late December when it was signed. Yeah, I mean it's embarrassing for any government to even if they're pretending to be saying, "Oh, we didn't know what we were doing," or "We rushed this through," or you know, it's just not really something that you'd accept. It's it's kind of yeah, it's embarrassing. Well, I don't think that they care. I mean, this this obviously all bears. The hallmarks of Dominic Cummings, who loves nothing more than to fight dirty and to 
I mean, he's written this on his blog so many times about, um, you, I mean, I'm sure you know about his obsession with Sun Ju's The Art of War and this strategy whereby you have to interrupt your opponent's OODA loop, which is um, to orient, I, mean, I can't actually remember what the four things stand for. I, I, maybe I'll, I'll look it up and come back to you shortly. <laughs> but it's just getting your opponent's faces, frighten them, disrupt them, anger them, and then and fracture their ability to think clearly and to make decisions clearly. And he, he, it has been met with a furious reaction, which I suppose was foreseeable. I mean, I, I don't really know what, the, what, what reaction they were, they were expecting to get. But the idea that Boris Johnson or, or Dominic Cummings or anybody will be embarrassed by the way that this has been received, I think is unlikely. I think the, I think the reaction was sort of, was priced in it, was priced in, if you like. What is harder to tell is, wh- is whether or not it's going to lead to the outcome that they imagine it will. They, they all sort of always think that they're playing three-dimensional chess. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example, right? So when they, um, the prorogation of the Supreme Court, didn't really go for them how they anticipated. You know, the Supreme Court telling them they couldn't pro Parliament. I don't think they were expecting to be told they had to reopen Parliament by force. And what happened as a consequence is that when they called their election in December, Dominic Cummings' grand plan then was to have forced through Brexit in this cavalier fashion and then have a sort of a congratulatory general election. But what actually happened was that they won the general election because they had been unable to force it through. And then they sold the general election on the promise to get Brexit done. So they're mad, and it works very well for them, but their mad schemes do not always go how they think they're going to go. And I'm not convinced this one is going to go how they think it's going to go. Well, because there's so many moving parts. And, and you're right, you, you talk about the sort of coming strategy of getting in your opponent's face and rattling them. And they have been met with strong condemnation, not just from their traditional opponents, but from Tory backbenchers, former PMs, and of course, the EU themselves. But the EU don't seem flustered, particularly. They're angry and they're sort of, you know, disappointed, in a, you know, in a very strong parental sense. But <laughs> there's, you know, someone like Michelle Barney, he, he seems a little bit unshakable. And I think they're hoping they can crack that, as you say. And the EU kind of remains strong on that front. Well, it always does. I mean, most of the articles or books that have been written about the four years of Brexit negotiations um, come back, conclude by making the same point, which is essentially the EU got the upper hand in the Brexit negotiations right from day one. In those first few days after the vote, when things were very chaotic here. And I think we always imagined that the different countries in the EU would have different desirable, different things that they would want from Brexit and that we could play them off against one another. And we did not expect the, the solidarity from the EU that the EU managed to find, because the EU is always a mess. It's 27 countries. It always disagrees. It's always in crisis. And yeah. I think we imagined we could use that crisis to our favour, that, that disunity to our favour. It absolutely didn't happen. There was complete solidarity in every single EU leader. I mean, I remember I went with Theresa May to Paris and and Berlin in the days after, just in the couple of days after she became prime minister. And all of the EU leaders said the same thing. They said, we will not be negotiating on anything. There will be no discussions at all until Article 50 has been triggered. And that total solidarity from the EU is not what we were expecting. And they learned from that, that if they manage to keep solidarity on Brexit, there are tremendous upsides to them for it. And I just don't... I. I I, if, if this is now a last minute attempt 
to break EU unity or to shake them up or unsettle them, it doesn't look like it's going to work. The big headline this week was that in order to go back on the withdrawal agreement and sort of override it, um, the government would be breaking international law, breaking its its international obligations, which they remarkably uh, just brazenly admitted. Um, Brandon Lewis, Northern Ireland Secretary, said that they would have to break the law in a limited and specific way. Uh, Tom, have you ever broken the law in a limited and specific way? Uh, oh, come on. This is being recorded. I mean, I, I, I think I would imagine I've broken it in very unlimited and very general ways. Um I think I mean when Brandon Lewis said that there was certainly a sharp intake of breath. It's hard to tell whether or not he intended to say it. Um it wasn't part of his preamble, it was in the response to a question. So if you're saving up that little um punchline, if you like, um it's quite a strange place quite a strange place to drop it. And, and understandably it has been condemned by everybody. But I just we shall see. I mean, I, I, I think it's unlikely that they will go through with this. I mean, they, as ev- all the condemnation that has come from, you know, from Gordon Brown's been doing it today. Uh, John Major obviously had a go. They've been disowned in the Lords by, by pretty dyed-in-the-wall Brexiteers like Michael Howard, the former party leader. It's a long way from saying that you're going to do this as a way to sort of shake up the negotiations, maybe to pave the way for, because you want the EU to walk out on them rather than you. It's a long way from doing, from saying that you're going to do it to actually doing it, to actually being you know, Great Britain, a, a permanent member of the UN Security Council. This, this, yesterday, Dominic Raab was um, issuing statements, wasn't he, telling, um, telling Iran that it had to maintain um, its, the terms of the, of the, of the JCPOA. Uh-huh. Um, it seems very, very, very unlikely that we can maintain our position as a, as an upholder of the rules-based system, especially when America is wavering, but maybe not for too much longer, who, who knows? It seems very, very, very unlikely that we can actually go through with this shattering, if you like, of our international credibility. And so we were a long way from actually doing it, but even saying that you intend to do it is damaging. Yeah, I mean, these sort of sort of grandstanding tweets from, as you say, the likes of Dominic Rab on things like Iran or let's say, you know, Russia poisoning on our streets or, you know, China and Hong Kong, they were already, you know, a little bit of a, you know, like a small dog sort of snarling at a large one. But as you say, the one thing Britain does have is a sort of sense of esteem um, that this is just going to kind of tear to shreds. Again, I ask, you know, does does Boris do Boris and Cummings care about this, or is this kind of have they just kind of gone way past that? Dominic Cummings is very committed to doing things in a different way. Um, he likes nothing more than to issue sort of um, intimidating quotes about you know he loves he's never happier than when he's sort of telling journalists on the sly that there's a hard rain coming down on Whitehall and things like that. That that is that is the Cummings way is to is to is to shake things up. And to and to sort of be unconventional and to disrupt people's sense of normality, um, because he thinks that when you do that, you immediately gain an upper hand. It's all it's all there in Sun Tzu's The Art of War. You know, you take people onto the I can't remember exactly, but you, you take people onto the seventh battleground, and that's where you win. You don't fight them on the territory in which they're comfortable. And if you make the EU have a fight about Britain's commitment to international law that's not really a fight that they're comfortable with having it's not really a fight they ever foresaw having and maybe the actual thing that you're trying to achieve is something different 
But as I was, was sort of saying about the um about the prorogation of Parliament, these tactics don't always play out in the way that one imagines. He's think he thinks they're going to play out. But I certainly don't think that Dominic Cummings or Boris Johnson are particularly embarrassed or or, or worried about like the reaction to what they're going to do because you know they 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 they, they did it and that they they and I think they are certainly certainly Boris Johnson potentially more than Dominic Cummings. They're certainly aware of this very strange situation in which this ex- coronavirus, this one in once in a one hundred year, just ent- entirely freak event, is providing extraordinary like um, ground cover between Brexit and the public. If you know what I mean, I mean when you're telling people that you can only meet up in groups of six and you can all volunteer to be COVID marshals to dob on your neighbours if there's too many people at their barbecue, that is a pretty large buffer between normal people and the amount that they might care about this sort of threat to undermine certain aspects of the Northern Ireland protocol that's part of the withdrawal agreement, this very, very, very detail-heavy, eye-glazing story. And I mean, that has done them big favours. I mean, it's, it's this, this, this threatening to break international law has not been the top story of the week, really. And that is, that's quite extraordinary, and, it, and it's probably helping them. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. I saw the people who were sort of suggesting, um, I'm thinking of former player advisor Jonathan Powell, was saying that this was more likely something to distract from the poor handling of coronavirus. Um, You're sort of suggesting it's the other way around, or certainly it's working the other way around. Um, Either way, the two things are hitting them at once. As you say, people much more likely to be focused on the imminent threat of a pandemic to their lives than they are to the sort of bureaucratic tribulations of a a trade deal or or whatever. Um, nevertheless, this can't be comfortable times for Number Ten. You know, are they? You know, they must be embattled in in some sense. I mean, things are not going well. I'm never really a great believer in the in the distraction school and the and the dead cat theory that put that 
politicians cleverly announce one thing to to distract attention from another, and especially in this case, that you, I'm I'm not sold on the idea that you would um essentially potentially cause structural breakdown to the European Union to the or to the Brexit negotiations because you want to like distract domestic public attention from your own poor handling of coronavirus. I think I think I think those things are are pretty separate, and I'm not sure as they they're like. I'm not sure as they they're combining in like the the Downing Street grid announcement operation type thing at all. The Brexit vote was four and a half years ago. We could have a very different style of government now. Very different. We could even they could even have lost. There could even be a Labour government by now. In in, in it's, it's not completely invisible in any way. Different governments would be potentially be approaching the freak arrival of coronavirus as an opportunity to say, look, we should extend or we should do something different. This government strategy is i think that they imagine they can conceal the damage of a no deal brexit which the the, the worst reasonable worst case scenario of which never came close to a 22% fall in gdp like the one we saw in the second quarter of this year mm-hmm. and i think they think they can conceal the harm that it will cause within coronavirus which is a, a completely once in a 100 year freak event what is making it harder for them is the fact that their handling of coronavirus is what's sticking to them is this notion of in, of incompetence. And also what I think is probably sticking to them is this notion of dishonesty. I mean, the trouble with coronavirus is every single government around the world is facing the same problem. So it's very, very easy to compare how your own government is doing. Um, the A-level results fiasco is completely self-inflicted um, mess that has done them huge damage. The Dominic Cummings' little trip to Barnard Castle has done them no favours, principally because in both of those instances, the only way you can stem the harm that it's doing you is by the person responsible quitting. And in both occasions, they decline to do so. So I think potentially, potentially, the people who are there are large numbers of people who are inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt on Brexit because they voted for it, they believe in it, mm. they think it's good, and then there are other people who are maybe sick to death of it and do just want it done. But perhaps the way that coronavirus has come along and been such a presence in people's lives, such an unignorable, you know, Brexit is just a pure political story, really. Coronavirus absolutely is not. It's had a deep impact on everybody's day to day lives, and perhaps it illuminates. Well, hang on. Maybe and, and and it's very clear for people to see that huge mistakes have been made in the handling of it. Huge mistakes, and maybe that illuminates to other people that they are not pursuing Brexit in the most constructive way that will have the best outcome for for my life. Yeah, I mean, with Brexit, um, there's a sense that you know the UK sort of going up against the EU, and you know, at least in Boris Johnson's mind, we're all on one side. But what coronavirus has given people a, a sense of is what he's willing to do to the country or how he treats the country, never mind how he treats the EU. So perhaps people who'd rally behind him to sort of take on the EU are suddenly feeling like he's not on their side when it comes to coronavirus. Yeah, well, sides sides are a difficult one because the, 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 the unfortunate consequence of the EU referendum is that the country is completely polarised. And so for a long time, people who, basically people who don't like Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings because they don't like Brexit, will extend them no slack at all. And then people who do like, do, did vote for Brexit and have become, and everybody has essentially become entrenched and radicalised by their position in that referendum. And it then feeds in to one's view of how 
the government deals with coronavirus. But I do think that the handling has so at the, at the start there was there was an inclination to give the government the benefit of the doubt. You know, people. I mean, I, I live in Romford, um, and Romford voted seventy percent for Brexit. And I know I know lots of people who love Brexit, love Boris Johnson, love Dominic Cummings. And if you speak to them in March, they were, oh, come on, they're doing their best. They're you know just you know, it's it's an impossible situation. They're trying their hardest. Hmm. If you speak to them now. They, they say, I cannot believe how useless they are. I cannot believe all the mistakes that they've been made. They, they even say, I cannot believe all the U-turns. And these are people who are not politically engaged, really. But they've, mm. seen, they've, seen, they've seen things as particularly like the A-level results mess and the constant changing rules and regulations. And I do think, actually, possibly, that it is causing some people to reappraise how they think the government is handling Brexit. But it is really too late because we are right at the eleventh hour now, and I do believe them when they're you know they're not bluffing. We will leave. On, we will leave on December the thirty first, and yeah. I do think we'll probably leave probably with a bare bones deal that will then become the basis of litigation when we try and do deals with other people that undermine it. I think that is the most likely outcome. Well, it's interesting because we had uh, a podcast. God, I think it was months ago now. We were talking to. Um, a woman who'd voted for Trump and had then sort of reneged on her support. She kind of can't believe what she voted for. And she was one of those people who hadn't voted before, hadn't really engaged in politics, but was swept up by Trump and was then paying attention to what he was doing in office and was shocked by it. And it's interesting, you almost describe a, a similar thing, because we know a lot of people who voted for Brexit were not constant voters. They sort of turned up for that vote. They then became tuned into the politics and now they're actually watching and they're seeing for the first time, well, hang on, these people, I gave these people my vote. Uh, you know, what on earth are they doing with it? I, I think so, yeah. I mean, and the polls are remarkable. The last week they were neck and neck, weren't they? 40% for Labour, 40% for, for the Conservatives. And that was a like a 26-point reversal on, on April or something. And you're looking at only, it's still, I mean, it feels like a 10,000 million years, but you're still only eight months after a, a extremely decisive election victory. I mean, obviously the Labour Party has a different leader now, but I, I certainly think it's true that um, the handling of the, the poor handling of the coronavirus crisis has been incredibly clear for everybody to see and incredibly easier to relate to than Brexit, which is essentially was only, which was voted on once four and a half years ago and was quite an emotional pull. And the, and the nitty gritty was never really part of that vote. And the nitty gritty is very, very complicated. And you have to be, you have to have a, you have to have a lot of free time to understand to understood what's gone on with Brexit over the last four and a half years. Mm. And I do think potentially coronavirus is making it easier for people to see that potentially Brexit is not, it might, might not be all it's cracked up to be. But mm. still too late to do anything about it. Going back to the trade deal, um, who wants a deal more, uh, the UK or the EU? Both sides definitely want a deal. Um, there's, there's no doubt about that. They're, they're continuing to negotiate. They'll be negotiating next week. It will be a failure of the of with the UK's um, negotiations, and, and it's it will be a failure of British policy to not leave with a deal. And Michel Barnier, who I think probably wants to be president of the European Commission, will consider it a failure of his own um, statecraft, if you like. Although if the EU is not a state, but a failure of his own statecraft to have not achieved one. Both sides definitely want one i don't i think i think it's clear that obviously the uk has more to lose if a deal is not signed 
Um, but the UK has more to lose by Brexit generally. I think this is why Michel Barnier is so exasperated. The point of a negotiation is that each both sides want from it what is in their best interests. But the UK doesn't really seem to be concerned by what he considers to be their best interests. You know, every t- he was when he was giving quotes, um, you know, three or four months ago, he, he he said this several times. He said, over the last three and a half years, nobody has been able to explain to me the added value of leaving the largest um, integrated single trading block in the world. Um, and he's absolutely right about that. So he, I think he finds this this aspect of the negotiations quite difficult and quite exasperating because he's negotiating with a partner that he sees as not wanting to act in its own best interests. So in regard to who wants a deal more, it's very hard to answer that question because in my view anyway, the UK is not acting in its own interests. So it's, it's, it's a hard question to answer. But both sides definitely want one. There's no doubt about that. How do you think this year is going to end? I mean, it's been a wild ride so far. Um, we've <laughs> still got, yeah. I always think of, you know, in the music industry, they call this Q4, when all the best stuff happens, all the best records come out. But, you know, I don't think it's going to be a great uh, ending of the year for anything else. Um, how do you feel about it? I still think the most likely outcome at the end of this year will be a poor a deal with the EU, a poor quality one, but a deal nonetheless which will then turn out to be not all as it may seem because future trade deals will impinge on it. But there will nevertheless, I do think, be some sort of moment of catharsis because a deal will be done, fake catharsis though it may be. And Donald Trump, as it stands, looks likely to lose, but I would not want to make any bets on that. And I think that the vaccine setback is only limited. I've got good friends that work work on the um, vaccine programme, the Oxford vaccine programme, and they're, they're very optimistic. So I think there's a reasonable chance, believe it or not, that 2020 may have a relatively happy ending. I mean, I, I, I personally am heartbroken about Brexit and I would give, I would just, I find it the most depressing thing that I've ever had anything to do with. But I do think there will be a sense of an ending and it possibly will be superior to the state that we're currently in. I do think Donald Trump may very well lose. And I do think very, very, very soon into the new year, there will be a rollout of a vaccine, at least to the most vulnerable people, and things might feel a lot better. So I think, believe it or not, the Q4 is quite a bit to be optimistic about. Well, I think, Tom, um, that's all we've got time for today. But I think you'll certainly have to come on for uh, maybe an end of year wrap where we can see just how (laughs) true those predictions were. (laughs) Thank you very much. Pleasure. If you're a new listener to the Behind the Headlines podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever else you listen. And if there are stories you'd like to hear discussed on the show, then please email us on behindtheheadlines at independent.co.uk. You can also support this show and original journalism at The Independent by signing up as a supporter. Details of that are in the description of this podcast. I'm Ben Kelly. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.